Hello, all you cybersecurity nerds out there, and welcome back to the ICS Pulse podcast. Just going to assume you're all cybersecurity nerds. We are. Join us. It's You can claim that proudly, that moniker nerd. It's a good thing. Nerds run the world. Uh, always happy to have you on the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. I am uh, host number one, Gary Cohen. I am thing two, Tyler Wall. <laughs> uh, one thing that we are always remiss about mentioning here at the top of the podcast is, um, hey, contact us. If you want to talk on the podcast, if you want to refute something somebody else said on the podcast, if you want to uh, tell us that you hate our voices or you like our voices or uh, you really disliked one of the conversations we had or liked one of them, contact us. You can always get us. My email is G-C-O-H-E-N, G-Cohen, at cfemedia.com. And I am Tyler Wall. I am T Wall at cfemedia.com. And yeah, even if you just need like a friend or something, you know, feel free to reach out because I could use some friends. We're we're lonely. Yeah. Talk <laughs> to us. We're bored most of the time. Mm. Um we have a uh, to uh, to fill the the empty hours for Tyler and I. We have another great podcast here for you. Uh fun guest today, Dennis Hackney. Uh, wait, hold on. Let me take that again. Dennis Hackney, PhD. Uh, very interesting guy. He's an OT cybersecurity practitioner. Um, he does OT cybersecurity for a large, large multinational uh, company, but he's also an adjunct professor at uh, at Texas A and M. He began began in the military, but has been doing cybersecurity and OT cybersecurity for many years. Really, really bright guy. Um, Tyler and I did our best to keep up in the interview, but but a fun conversation with him. Yeah, he is much, much smarter than I, uh, but it was yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. But as always, before we start these conversations, and on a similar vein to our question from last time, um, what is your favorite mixed drink? My favorite mixed drink. Are we talking about alcoholic mixed drinks? Alcoholic mixed drink. Yeah. yeah I, so you'll have to understand that I was brought up in the 1930s, but I think my favorite two drinks are uh, either a Manhattan or an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to go with the whiskey drinks, and uh, yeah, those are are the ones that I will typically go with. Yeah, yeah those are safe. Uh, usually, my uh, well, my go to if I'm like just out, I don't know, out at night with some friends is usually like a Jack and Coke or like a rum and Coke. Um, but like if I'm like at a sit down establishment or if I'm kicking back at home or whatever, usually because. I am also from the 1930s. Uh, Typically, I also like to enjoy an old fashioned as well. Um, Yeah, I know. I know that's kind of a basic drink, but it's a fantastic one. Well, we mentioned on one of the podcasts recently, you were asking about favorite like go to drinks and you mentioned ginger ale. I will. I I think I said it there. I will always do like a whiskey and ginger ale or a bourbon and ginger ale. Mm. You know, it's a it's. I, it's a drink that doesn't feel like a drink. I'm not a heavy drinker anyway, so I'll have like a drink. So I, I tend to get the old, old person drinks and, and sip them. Sip them. Yes. Maybe, maybe we'll do an after hours podcast sometime. We'll have our glasses of, uh, an old fashioned going while we're, (laughs) while we're drinking it. But I, I also like a good Moscow mule kind of on the note of ginger ale a little bit, ginger beer, but, um, those are pretty good as well. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a heavy drinker either. Uh, depends on which phase of my life you're talking about. But I'm not, I, yeah, it's an occasional drink now. So I like to I like to sip on those. 
Sorry, I, mom, I, if you're listening to this. I, yeah, yeah, I do. And, and you know, mom is probably listening to this. I'm sure she's Obviously. proud of her boy. Yeah. Uh, I do like the idea of the ICS Pulse podcast after dark. We'd have to have a different kind of theme music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't quite know what that would entail, but it would get racy. I know that. It would. Yeah, I'm thinking the music would be heavy vibraphone, kind of do. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it would be a nice, it would be almost like a mystery thriller kind of thing. Or or we could like have Barry White or Luther Vandross in the background or something that's mm. kind of yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. So Say also that. yeah, we'll give it some thought. And then we'll have to have the right guest on here who can have a drink. It'll be like the Tonight Show in the 1960s. Oh. Everybody'll have like a cigarette and a drink and we'll oh, uh, man. Yeah. And we'll, Puff a we'll cigar. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk cybersecurity. Yeah. Exactly. Switching gears to cybersecurity, speaking of our day job. Um, yeah, today we talked to Dennis Acne. He talked to us a lot about zero trust and things entailed with zero trust. Is it a philosophy? Is it a real thing that we can actually implement into everything else? Who knows? Stay tuned. Um, but in other things from the news, though, uh, recently, as of uh, as of the time of recording, who's to say what the world's like? at the time this comes out. Uh, but ChatGPT actually recently had a data breach uh, confirmed, which is a, a bigger deal. You know, ChatGPT, as I'm sure all of you kind of know, is this rising from the ashes, not even ashes, just rising uh, AI intelligence. That was redundant. Um, artificial intelligence, intelligence. Artificial intelligence, intelligence. Uh, website software that you can use to generate um, different Things. I mean, it's such a broad thing to use, and I shouldn't use the word thing, but it is. It's just you can use it for many, many different tasks, if you will, whether that be marketing. I am sure people use it for cybersecurity things. I would be love to see some stuff about that, but there has been a data breach. And uh, so a security firm identified a vulnerability component that was exploited by attackers and the breach raised concerns about privacy and security of AI powered systems, which is very relevant as because AI systems, especially this one, uh, has access to a lot of things as uh, plenty of people have been using it and searching with it and developing with it. And there's an investigation currently underway with efforts to improve system security and prevent future incidents. But, um, Users have been urged to change their passwords and uh, monitor their accounts for suspicious uh, suspicious activity. And yeah, it's uh, a little spooky. Italy uh, actually recently banned it um, because of data compliancy, data um, uh, just reasons associated with people's data privacy. So. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, we're a little fascinated with ChatGPT because it's something that we play around with for our, you know, for, for as Tyler mentioned, our day jobs. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to be able to to toy with, to ask questions. I mean, I've, and I will say full disclosure, I tried to use it to do some research on an article I was writing. And it was, I've, I've done that before, used it for things like that. And I found it useful. I always double check everything because, you know, I don't always know where the information is coming from. Uh, 
and it like this week it was a total bust for me i tried to to get it to do some research on an old cyber attack for a throwback attack i was writing and it gave me a ton of information and i kept asking it questions and then it would contradict itself and i'd try to find corroborating evidence of the information it was giving me and i couldn't find it anywhere so it was like you know as i was going through it uh, this attack was the, the doppelpamer ransomware. But then I asked again and it would be like, it was WannaCry. And then I'd ask again and it was something else. And it was, you know, the company paid a $2.7 million ransom. No, no, it paid a $4.4 million ransom. No, it did not pay a ransom. And I was like, I, I, so I tried to ask it where the information was coming from. C cite your, show your work, cite your sources. And it gave me a, a list of articles and links uh, and this is a problem that, that with ChatGPT is, you know, you ask it for articles or links. It's not a search engine. So the, the links never work. Uh, so you really don't know, or at least I don't know as a layman, I don't know where the information is coming from. So it's, again, it's been fun to play with. It is not surprising, but somewhat alarming that there was a data breach. The thing in Italy, which is probably going to be a few weeks old by the time you guys hear this is really interesting. It's not uh, a permanent ban. It's a, it's, um, you know, right now it's just suspended, but it, they want to investigate open AI, the, you know, the parent of chat GPT over risks to privacy, cybersecurity, disinformation. Um, I mean, there's calls for that happening on this side of the Atlantic too. So it's not, um, unusual, but the, you know, the authority said, this is from an article in Politico, the company lacks a legal basis justifying, quote, the mass collection and storage of personal data to train the algorithms of chat GPT. And, and it, it does make sense. There are, you know, it was kind of thrown out here into the wild for people to use. And, and it feels a little wild westy right now. Like we're, Ooh. I think we're all learning what it is. And there's still a lot of questions about, about what it is and what it can do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and a lot of this too, I mean, it's, you get out of it what you put into it, right? So if I put in bad information, I'm going to get bad information out. If I put in exactly what I want from top to bottom in a 500 word uh, question, I'm sure it'll give me exactly what I want. Um, and it's important to remember that, as Gary kind of just said, uh, ChatGPT is not a web-based um, product, meaning it is not uh, searching the web for certain things unless you specifically ask it to. It's relying on previous data that has been inputted into it uh, from, depending on which version you're using, up to 2021 and years prior to that. Uh, but it is more so a learning uh, tool. So... Um, meaning, so for example, with like broken links that don't work, it's not, it's generating those links because it thinks that's what you want, if that makes any sense at all. Like, uh, so that's why links are, these are all, they're all 404 links. And it's very frustrating if you're trying to write and research and use those links. And then it just wants to try and give you what you want. And you're like, oh, it's always what I want. It's like a really bad relationship with poor communication. Uh, that's what I would compare it to. So, And I think it's also going to be interesting with uh, with Italy suspending it for now, as a lot of times the, you know, I wonder if the rest of the EU will follow suit. The yep. EU is a little bit more stringent, I think, on cybersecurity regulation Absolutely. than the US. And so it'll be, I'm curious to see, 
if by the time you, uh, you, dear listener, are listening to this podcast, if other dominoes have fallen and, and you know, Great Britain is no longer using it and Germany is no longer using it. And uh, I, I imagine because we're the U.S., we'll continue using it because no one tells us what to do. But, mm-hmm. but, but, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Um, it is an interesting tool. But uh, but like I said, we're all still figuring out what it is and what to do with it and where it'll go from here. So I am yeah. curious if this does, uh, if the rest of the EU follows suit from Italy. Yeah, and we'll see if, uh, I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, if ChatGP just already rules the world and, I mean, AI becomes a sentient creature and we're in a post-apocalyptic world. We had a conversation, this is an internal company conversation, uh, about a week ago, where somebody was showing some queries that he had put into ChatGPT, and he got made fun of a little bit because he was real polite to ChatGPT. It was uh, every time he'd get an answer, he's like, "Thank you, ChatGPT, I appreciate that," which I don't do when I talk to ChatGPT. And then another mm-hmm. person was like, "You shouldn't thank ChatGPT." Mm-hmm. And I just like it's it's like we all have this Terminator idea of what AI is going to do to the world, and it's like, well, I want to be nice to it because. You know, when ChatGPT takes over the world, at least it'll know I or vice versa. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah we're, we're trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly he's going to be the one that survives when the apocalypse happens because he thanked him. Uh, but I mean, in totally related and perfect transition format uh, today, uh, we talked to uh, a great, great guy, Dennis Hackney, about um zero trust and zero trust being implemented into different spaces within the cybersecurity industry uh, and how we can shift it into uh, ot environments and i mean it's zero trust is still a relatively new concept within the cybersecurity community i mean i know uh biden the biden administration released their new strategy cybersecurity strategy and they reference it in there a couple times um, but in reality, I mean, it's this, it's a very new, new uh, technology, if you will, um, that is just kind of coming to the forefront. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the things that uh, Dennis and, and, uh, and Tyler and I will talk about during the interview is a lot of the, you know, the, especially when protecting critical infrastructure, the Biden-Harris administration has suggested that zero trust is a, a good framework to use. Um and we asked Dennis about that, and he was like, "Yeah, a lot of the government stuff is is aspirational at this point. It's not uh, always overly practical, which is not that surprising." But that was an interesting part of the discussion, I think. And and you'll hear it in a few seconds. Here is that idea of of okay, I want to implement zero trust. I believe in it. I think it's the right concept. How do I put this into practice in my organization without breaking the organization? Exactly. All right. So let's introduce Dennis here. So Dennis Hackney, PhD, is an OT cybersecurity practitioner with over 20 years of experience in cybersecurity. Dennis specializes in the development and deployment of IT and OT cybersecurity products and services. Dennis designs new services and deliverables for a diverse range of industries, executing programs that address cybersecurity needs and specialize and industrial environments, and supporting the advancement of compliance and technology solutions. Dennis holds a PhD in information security, as well as degrees in electronic systems, applied sciences, and business administration. And here's the conversation with Dennis. Dennis Acne, thank you for being with us today. 
It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So before we get into it, we like to ask all of our guests kind of like their background in the space and who they are, where they came from, and how they got to where they are now. So I'm going to ask you that. Uh, what's your what's your background in cybersecurity and things, and how did you get into cybersecurity? Thanks, Tyler. I, I love telling the story because I, I, I started with a, kind of a humble background, humble beginnings uh, in the military. And what's what's really cool about it is that back then I didn't really... Uh, realize the emphasis was on security so much, but I was in tactical communications. And as part of my job, I was a communications controller, which in the, in the 90s, they called it a computerized or computer systems communications controller. Um, we managed the circuits. So you could almost, you have a picture in your mind of that old Bell South, like uh, attendant, you know, plugging in patch cords, uh, to patch the lines to make the, the telephone calls go through. That was part of what our job was, but it wasn't just, it wasn't just audio, it was digital too. Um, and managing those circuits, we had to manage the encryption devices on those circuits. And this is, again, this is in defense. So I started, ha I started uh, having to actually manage the ComSec, which was what you loaded into the encryption devices, uh, e e even early on in my career. I eventually got out of the military and said, hey, I'm kind of kind of done with this. I've done my time and instantly got offered contracts, uh, roles to work in, you know, different defense contracting organizations. Uh, and I picked one. It was, the money was good. It was it was great. Started doing compliance, cybersecurity compliance, which at the time we called it DITSCAP, the DOD Information Technology Security Certification and Accreditation Program, because it's got to be a mouthful. It's defense, right? <laughs> Government related. Um, and uh, we were doing that on research and development systems. And you know what they lumped into research and development systems are, are testing and evaluation systems, usually SCADA, process control, operational technologies. And that's when I kind of figured out what that was. Um, after defense contracting for a few years, I, I got into oil and gas. Um, Realized that a lot of the technical work that I was doing really helped with com the compliance side of the house. Um, and after a little bit of time, I started getting interested into exposure risk, like not not risk, like cyber risk, which is kind of like, you know, an equation of sorts uh, to determine something. Risk like enterprise risk, risk to an organization, things that expose you to litigation and things like that. Um, and now I'm interested in more of the compliance side of the house again, but related to that. And I, and I do teach as an adjunct professor, cybersecurity compliance in a, in a law, in a legal program. So that's kind of my, my background, um, my day job, uh, one of my many, many hats that I wear my day job is, uh, as an OT cybersecurity engineer for a super major oil company. Um, and that always keeps me on the run, but yeah, so that's it in a nutshell, um, so where are we heading from here? <laughs> I, I won't even hold it against you that you're an adjunct professor at Texas A&M and I did my undergrad at Texas. So we've got the, <laughs> we've, we've got the competing interests here, but I, I think it's really interesting. We have a surprising number of the people that we have come on the podcast or talk to us in our videos have a, a I won't say a similar background, but have a military background. And so I have a tendency to think, well, they came through the Marine cybersecurity program, but generally their time in the military had nothing to do with cybersecurity or they sort of stumbled into cybersecurity. They were, 
you know, riflemen and they were different things. But once they came out of the military, it's where they. So I don't know if there's something in that military background that prepares you well for a, a cybersecurity career or if it's just coincidental. Yeah, cybersecurity um, definitely in the modern world looks a lot like, you know, military activities. I would say defense and, and aggressive offensive, uh, offensive activities, they, they follow kind of a military mindset. So maybe that's why. Um, I would also say that as we advance um, in a, as a civilization, but as a country, and we, we advance more and more, all of our systems that we use in the military are cyber computer enabled, right? So technology is advancing. Our our fundamental training as a tech controller started in communications, communications security. So I had a module on transmission theory and how all that works, different types of antennas, SCSI arrays, all, all kinds of different things, parabolic, you know, dishes. Um, but my career field in the Air Force actually evolved into, as, as it got combined with a few others, uh, cyber. So it doesn't exist anymore, um, but it was one of the core career fields that that combined to become the cyber uh, command. Wow. So I would say the background's a little stronger than just, you know, being military because we, mm. that's what we did. Right. Right. Yeah. That is, I think that is a very interesting trend and in kind of what we've Gary and I have seen at least, but today's topic of course is zero trust. Uh, and so I guess my first question for you is what is zero trust and what are kind of the components, technologies and architectures that make it up? I would see in a in in this world where we have a lot of different communication systems and networks and enterprise resources and people who are trying to access those enterprise resources it's becoming increasingly difficult to actually manage the connections and manage access to those systems and the theory of zero trust really started with we, we have to explicitly deny everyone access until we can verify that we trust that identity. So what that's turned into in the modern world is some enhanced access control, which you would, you know, you, that would make the most sense, right? Access control mechanisms point towards like Active Directory where that's coming from, but we'll talk into detail about what makes it enhanced. Micro segmentation, meaning we control access to different parts of our networks um, more discreetly it's instead of having a, a large wide open network or a local area network with multiple resources, we, we micro segment those into different resource pools. Um, and some of the more modern technologies are, are, are going towards a software defined network approach. So using tools like Elicity to define your network via be a software application versus just putting in a switch here and a router there, actually managing it from a centralized point. Mm. Um, but just real quickly, uh, zero trust in its purest form is you have um, a subject who's trying to gain access to an enterprise resource. The enterprise resource is protected. The subject is an unknown or untrusted subject at first. They use an asset, which could be a computer, and then there's a, there's a policy enforcement engine and a policy decision point that takes place in the middle where once that access is requested, it gets parsed and checked against different things like threat intel, um, 
the updates uh, or patching that's been done to the asset they're using um, and whether or not they have the right to or the, the need to know. And then once that access is granted, you, you essentially trust the subject and they can gain access to the, the enterprise resource. And so in its fundamental form, that's what zero trust is. So why should we be looking at zero trust in, in operational technology networks? What are the drivers to kind of adopt some kind of zero trust model in OT, which I feel like it would be more difficult in OT than IT. And that's a very good question. A lot of organizations have actually gone towards some kind of zero trust architecture on their uh, enterprise or IT resource networks. And they've struggled with it. There's, there's probably not a pure zero trust network out there on the market. And a lot of technology providers, product providers are, are trying to step up to the challenge to build a better zero trust technology or solution. Um, but in OT, it's different. In OT, we look at it like, traditionally we've used the Purdue model or the Purdue enterprise reference architecture. And that evolved from an ISA 95 drawing, which said, things that get a little bit closer towards the process or the operations typically have discrete uh, digital or analog signals. They're not, um, they're not computerized per se. And then the higher up you get in that model, the more computerized and the more like a business or an IT environment it gets. And so we call that the Purdue model. But what we found was there's multiple levels in that model. There's zero at the bottom, which is sensors and valves and actuators and things like that. Um, then one where you have the things that control those, and then two where you have the entry level of computers that help computerize systems that help to do that, and then three, and then three and a half is a DMZ. So you've got your SCADA and your DCS, and then your your uh, Active Directory servers and your DMZ and different. It's like a boundary in between the business and and the OT side. Um, but what we found is zero up to three, and sometimes part of three and a half ends up just being its own zone. So there's really no protection across from, let's say, east to west or left to right in that model. It's all, if it's the same protocol, it all communicates. There's no security or anything like that. And when we look at that from a security perspective, we have a firewall sometimes in between each of those levels from north to south, but just this, this open zone. And one of the, the principles of zero trust is that you're not fundamentally redesigning your entire architecture with all these boundary protection devices. What you're doing is you're introducing a new functionality that just controls access in a proactive way. So in theory, because you're not completely redesigning that architecture, which we'll talk about a way to do that in a, after a while using, zero, uh, using zones and conduits. In theory, since you're not doing that, with a few carefully placed um, process or policy, excuse me, decision points or enforcement points, you might be able to control access uh, to those critical infrastructure devices more safely um, than completely re-architecting the network. That makes sense. So it's a, a lot of new uh, cybersecurity directives have been coming out of the Biden administration um, whether that's the new national cybersecurity strategy that was released a few weeks ago or, or some of the others. And those are suggesting or pointing towards zero trust as a real solution, or at least uh, a recommended practice, especially in critical infrastructure. Do you see that as a good thing that the, when, you know, the at least the, the government, when they're looking at critical in infrastructure, is looking at zero trust as a, as a preferred method? 
you'll see in our in our government where we have the center, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and we have some of these funded programs um, that do a lot of research, and they they work with like the Idaho National Labs, who who really knows OT pretty well, you know, um, and so they help to design and write up these things. Um, and in theory, it, it kind of does make sense. Um, but I, I, was in, I was in a conversation at a very large conference last year where a small group, um, a type of coalition per se, who's working at lobbying and helping to update some of these standards from the outside, had this discussion. And most of it was uh, very esoterical, like I don't trust it, or I don't think this could happen, or this doesn't make a lot of sense, or the government doesn't know what they're talking about, just saying zero trust and zero trust and zero trust. Um, and it kind of seems like there's a disconnect between what what the the world, the operators, the owners, the system users are doing, and what they're doing to protect their systems, and what the and what that regulation is kind of steering towards. But I will give you a specific example, and that's in our security directives that came out from from TSA for pipeline. In which case, they did specifically call out something like a zero trust. And in theory, like I said, zero trust might actually be a good thing because you're looking at the, the, the reason that went down was because there was no clean way to disconnect the OT from the IT side of the network. You had zero trust. You, obviously, you could do that with those, those technologies. But when the organizations tried to apply some of these things, they, they had to sidestep the, that, that comment. You know, There's not a way to do zero trust. Go back to the NCCOE, the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and see how they're doing it. And they're trying to figure it out, even on the IT side. So you can't put that in a document if it's that aspirational. There's no way to do it. So don't put it in the document if it's that aspirational. If you can say lean towards software-defined networks, all of a sudden we get our vendors out there and we, we start applying or de developing different ways to install software-defined networks. Or if you say, you know, go towards this type of active directory or make sure that you have that type of authentication, use multi-factor authentication, but make sure you have a way to update it. Then it makes a lot more sense. But yeah, I think what's happening is some of these recommendations are even like they came out in the SDs and this, you know, those directives are aspirational and there's a big disconnect between who wrote that and people that are doing it. I know there's been a lot of issues with, um, I know within, I guess, the government and instilling different cybersecurity ideas and models to try and elevate everybody else with usually being a little aspirational rather than realistic in the past. Uh, but what you were saying about uh, pipeline was a fantastic segue into the next question of, has zero trust been implemented in real world IT and where does it stand with OT right now? Yeah, so on the IT side of the house, um, we see organizations that say they've they've done it on the larger scale, like in the in their data centers and and uh, large enterprises, large enterprise networks, or even their point of sale systems. We can say things that are customer interfaces. Um, and so it's just with varying levels. Uh, I mentioned the NCCOE earlier, um, and so that's the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. They are actually going through evaluations with multiple service organizations and product organizations. And that's documented in standard uh, in, in the um, standard procedure, NIST standard procedure 1800-35 series. Um, and so that's a good read if you're actually wanting to see how some of these networks look. And it starts with cloud services and how you've got Azure AD or AWS uh, active or directory 
Um, and, and, and it kind of talks through how you can develop that type of a policy enforcement engine in those environments using solutions that are working through that with NCCOE and NIST. So that's a good, that's a good place to start. If you actually want a write-up of organizations that are both service and product providers and U.S. government organizations working together with some actual examples of architectures. When it comes to OT, um, there's been a large, I think, um, maybe maybe marketing um, or may, maybe a, a, I don't know, a development, but a large campaign around zero trust in OT. And I, I think the idea is just like I just like I kind of explained. But what was funny was after that coalition meeting last year, I'm not going to name the coalition, but after that meeting last year, I started getting a little bit more interested in zero trust too, because I was like, these people don't know what they're talking about. And some of them are vendors, they're OEMs, and some of them are part of the government. And so I was like, this, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why do these people, oh, I don't trust it, you know? Oh, that'll never work. Oh, I'd like to learn more about it, you know? Of course, they had a month to prepare. But it just seemed like, it seemed like something I'd be interested in. Mm. And so I did start to research it. And I was like, well, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff might work. And in, in operational technology networks, um, even, even where I am, the space where I'm working, um, not to be too specific, we're already looking at software-defined networks. You know, where the virtualization exists, we're looking at micro-segmentation and we're looking at technologies that help us manage that virtualized environment from the perspective that we're micro-segmenting the virtual environment. And so that's being done today. That's absolutely, you know, possible in most of these environments. You just, you just have to take it, uh, you, you have to get in your maintenance cycle and you have to kind of take it careful and make sure that when you go through it, you're testing and evaluating everything out in your labs. Um, so, but large companies, you're probably going to see where that's already, that's already being done. They're just not calling it zero trust, right? Mm. Yeah. And so how can these OT models work and uh, do they relate to other standards like zone and conduits, like what you mentioned earlier? Zones and conduits actually looks a lot. So the ISA IEC 6443 model, um, which one will kind of give you an overview of what that is. Uh, you have to pay for it. Um, 3-2 gives you kind of the requirements around zones and conduits. But that let's let's talk about that just for a little bit because I can I can kind of relate that to the zero trust model. And zones and conduits, the idea is you're 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 kind of stepping away from that historic model that we used to use called the Purdue model. And you're looking at systems based off of basically functionality, but it could be physical or logical connectivity and location. Um, and you're identifying if there's a way to compartmentalize everything that's required to make that system run into one module and then other systems into other modules. And then you're very specifically connecting through conduits between those modules so you control all communications. And the idea there is if I have a zone over here that includes my distributed control system or my control system, I can island it off from some other untrusted zones if necessary, but also because I control the communication, I can install very specific boundary protection and, and boundary defenses, right? That's the idea between zones and conduits in theory. In reality, what happens is it's very difficult to identify these zones, especially in a very large OT network, um, because at the end of the day, it starts looking like it's all one big zone. And that's, that's kind of what I've run into, in, at least in my experience. 
But where it, where it relates to zero trust is once you get all those zones identified, and, and we call that a system under consideration, once you get all those zones identified and you assign a security level to it, then you've adequately defined your enterprise resource. And that enterprise resource is what, you know, things are trying to hack into. So let's just say digital and, you know, human identities or whatever you want to call it are trying to hack into. And you have a very specific connection going in and out of that zone called a conduit, which you can manage uh, uh, very clearly and very, and, and very concisely in a way that you know everything going in and out of it. And that's why, that's why that model kind of works, works well. Um, now, from a zero trust perspective, we call that sandboxing kind of, because what, we, what we're doing is we're not, we're not really controlling, uh, we're not really implementing zero trust to every asset inside of that zone. We're just treating that zone as if it's, a, as if it, as if it's an enterprise resource. So there will be some access that takes place within that zone that we're not really managing. It's really a hybrid kind of model at the end of the day. But additionally, when I was talking about the virtualized resources, um, there are examples of zero trust models where you can sandbox your applications. And so you install this policy enforcement point and decision point um, as an application, or it could be you know, a separate application and a separate server if you, if you wanna control it from you know, a security perspective. Um, and then once you micro-segment your virtual environment, you know, your SCADA ser uh, control servers from your historians, um, from your Active Directory, um, from your alarm systems, engineering workstations, what have you, then you can control that, you know, basically remotely with your policy enforcement point. Some, something tries to gain access from the Active Directory server to an engineering workstation, and that subject shouldn't be doing that because it doesn't follow the standard behaviors, then you can cut it off, right? So that's kind of where those two, those two converge. And I think the models from that perspective, that hybrid kind of approach um, is absolutely possible. And that's kind of what we're working towards. Where are companies right now running into problems with the zero trust concept? But you said, so it's from the government standpoint, it's a little aspirational. There are other companies that are interested in it, but don't really understand it. Where are they running into roadblocks with zero trust from both an implementation and an operational point of view? Both on the product and the services side, you know, I I presented in uh, in a conference last year about zero trust uh, for operational technologies, um, and it was a plea. It was a plea because I wanted solution integrators to come forward and let's work on this problem together. How are we going to make this work? Um, but on the product standpoint, um, product providers aren't quite in a place where they're working together, and it requires more than one solution or a solution that can do everything, but it just doesn't exist today. So for example, there's a big demand um, on, the, on the domain um, or the authentication mechanism in zero trust, meaning your active directory, for example, has to manage access to everything. However, um, there aren't necessarily dynamic policies in place to consider things like behavior, uh, behavioral your heuristics, um, threat intelligence in the domain. So it's going to need something that triggers a policy change. And you know, if you've worked in these active directory domains, it's static. You set, you set the stuff up and it's static. So that's, that's an issue right there. 
um, a lot of organizations or product organizations, vendors, excuse me, that are developing zero trust type technologies are focusing on the boundary, firewalls, um, things like that, uh, protection devices. Again, they have to work with the um, the authentication mechanisms for that to work properly. So there's just a there's kind of a disconnect, and it's and it it's active, it's big data. You go you go to your threat intelligence sources, and I've experienced this. You know, there's the big ones out the big ones out there, um, just to name a few, like CrowdStrike and uh, Mandian, uh, Dragos and OT, and and some of the others. Um, and usually when you get a feed from them, it's kind of, it, it's kind of, it's historical, right? Uh, it's not, it's not like active up-to-date content. If you want somebody to proactively identify threats, that's a service, but it's not integrated with a technology in a very good way, which also takes into account your infrastructure. So that's kind of where we are with it. Um, and it's really, like I, like I said, I think it's a solution provider or a solution architect's problem to solve how to make all these things how to make all these things work together. And again, I mentioned the NCCOE, the, uh, the SP1835, uh, and that's, that's a good place to, to start to see how different providers in, in the industry are actually working to, to develop some of these solutions. So I was at Black Hat back, uh, oh, however months, many months ago now, it feels like years, uh, six months ago or so. And one of the topics that was presented, I believe, at the CISO summit was related to uh, zero trust being more of a philosophy than a service. Um, how do you think being that you know, I mean, you're a very knowledgeable on zero trust, very obviously. Uh, do you think that is strong that it's purely a philosophy is there like a good balance between like a solutions provider making this philosophy into a practice that they can institute for other companies what are your thoughts on that we always have to start from somewhere you know there are idea ideas people out there and you know god bless them i wish i was one but i'm not and then it takes some of us to figure out how to make it work uh, this did start as a philosophy and it didn't even start in it right um and the, the cool part about it is when you see these aspirational things come out in regulation, which makes it very difficult for companies to, to achieve, right? Um, it does force us to move in a certain direction. It does force us to do certain things. And if you don't think it's a real thing, then tell that to Palo Alto and tell that to Cisco and tell that to uh, Amazon Web Services and Microsoft with their Azure products, uh, uh, Fortinet, like tell it to all these vendors because it's branded all over their stuff now. And it, that makes it a real thing. So, yeah, so we've got some philosophy and we've got some ideas, people, and maybe they'll change the world um, after they die. <laughs> but yeah, that's how it, that's just basically how it becomes a real thing. I, I think that the concept in theory um, is pretty sound because it's basically saying, hey, I can't trust anything on my network. I don't know if an insider is a threat. I don't know if an outsider is a threat. I don't know if my boundary is protected. I don't know if my multi-factor authentication has a zero day that's going to be exploited. So I might as well not trust anything. And then what happens is it becomes more of an active risk management function, right? Because things come in, high risk, don't trust them, check out all their credentials. I accept the risk, trust them. And then I don't have to do a risk assessment anymore. So my life's better, right? 
Makes sense. So, uh, so if somebody came to you, whether it's from your company or a student of yours or somebody from an outside company and said, all right, I buy into zero trust. I think it's a great idea. Where do I get started? What, what do you tell them? Um, I'd probably tell them to get started uh, just doing a web search and looking at the NIST documentation. Um, so I do think that the, the special publication that I mentioned is probably a good, a good place to start just because it is uh, an evaluation of technologies and, um, and services that are, that are out there today. Um, and so that's, that was actually a, a NIST document um, it's 1835, 1835. Uh, I think there's an A, B, C, and D uh, with a couple of different, you know, lab scenarios. Uh, and that would be, that'd be a, a really good place to start. Um, just read through those, try to see if there's anything you, you're familiar with and recognize and uh, go from there. Well, one thing I think is really interesting is this, this off of the zero trust, we're closing up here, but uh you know, you're an adjunct professor at Texas A&M, and I tend to think, you know, more and more schools are starting to have cybersecurity programs, but you're a professor in the School of Law, it looks like, which I find really interesting because so many of these, especially when you're talking about compliance and standards, so much of these cybersecurity practices end up being, you know, legal. And I, I'm guessing you're not a lawyer. No, I'm I'm not a lawyer, but um, I do work in a cybersecurity program. So the students, um, many of them are lawyers, some of them aren't lawyers, um, but they're usually middle management or maybe higher. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're specializing on things like contract law or cybersecurity, just depending on what, what their role takes. But I have worked with a lot of lawyers and I have worked with a lot of lawyers specifically in cybersecurity. And I will say that there is a very large gap, a knowledge gap in what lawyers know about cyber um, and what they're being asked to provide as far as cybersecurity services and advice. And so it is, it is a good program, but I will say like the reason I'm teaching this program is because um, I teach or in this program is because I teach compliance, cybersecurity compliance. And we have a very solid foundation for cybersecurity compliance that goes back uh, 35 plus years in defense um, that started with, uh, you know, what, what, what before it was NIST was National Security, uh, National Standards uh, Organization or board. And they started designing this stuff because personal computers were being used in the government, right? So this, this process has evolved from, from that to certification and accreditation to assessment and authorization, 35 plus years. And there probably isn't a program out there on the commercial side that could even touch what the government's learned from, from all this, all this stuff. Um, and, and like I mentioned a little bit earlier on when I was introducing myself, the longer I'm in this career and the longer I'm focusing on, you know, I did my CISSP um, 15 years ago or whenever it was, the, the more I focus on what cybersecurity is, uh, the more I want to learn about kind of the risk um, and uh, the exposures related to cybersecurity. Um, so that's that's why it's there. I think uh, I think it it is kind of a legal thing. A lot of times, it a lot of organizations they'll have like a chief risk officer. Some of them don't. Um, what what it what falls back on is usually like your CFO or chief counsel or uh, you know those types of people in the organization to say what's my financial risk. Um, also, what's my legal exposure here. 
So there's a little bit of a gap there. Go back to the CISO or go back to the CTO, uh, CIO and the CISO and ask them what their exposure is and their risk is. And they're going to tell you something about computers or technologies. So yeah, that program is helping people get to where they need to be so that we'll have CISOs and CIOs and CTOs that know what they're talking about when it comes to risk and exposure. Absolutely. Hey, Dennis, thanks for the great conversation today. Thank you for having me. And there it is, our conversation with the great, the fabulous Dennis Hackney. A lot of PhD. great information. Oh, PhD. Excuse me. Dennis Hackney. A go-go. Esquire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, fantastic conversation. Uh, he had a lot of great insights beyond Gary and I's comprehension of anything in cybersecurity. Uh, as it happens most of the time, but I uh, brought a lot of great information on zero trust. Definitely. And it's, uh, you know, I obviously we deal with industrial cybersecurity. So we're talking about OT networks a lot. Um, and I, I, I think it's interesting. We, we mentioned it in the interview. It, it's not like it's easy to implement in IT systems, but it, it, I think is, Although it's safer, it's almost counterintuitive to OT systems. Like, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anybody, even in my own company. Everybody's got to be verified. And and so getting to that point where we can start using zero trust in OT environments, it's going to take some work, but it does feel like that work is worthwhile and it's a good place to get to because... Um, as we talk about all the time on here, when you're talking about OT systems, whether that's critical infrastructure or a, a company churning out car parts, uh, you do not want people, you do not want to enter into that system to be able to get into your network. So starting at a place of zero trust of, hey, I got to verify that Tyler Wall is Tyler Wall before I let him in is probably a good place to be. It is. And I think another important point to kind of highlight too is while zero trust, the the oh the slogan of it is never trust, always verify. I mean, the third part that should be included in that is zero trust is uh, never trust, always verify, and continuously monitor. Um, so even after you do trust whatever software, whatever company coming in to put their third-party uh, stuff into your systems, to continuously monitor it because... I mean, that's just another another entry point and their end point for threat actors to come through. And so adding that third principle in just is it's an extra step. Again, like the last podcast, the gravy on the mashed potatoes, the icing on the cake. You know, it's just a nice extra step to put in there to ensure best practices are being instilled. Right. And a lot of, I think I said this 12 times about chat GPT at the top is like, we're still learning what it is. We're still figuring it out. I think there's a little bit of that into zero trust too. It's not that we don't know what it is. We just need to figure out we, the global, we, the Royal, we need to figure out how to implement this, how to make it work, how it works in it systems, how it works in OT systems, how it works in your individual company. And so, you know, as we talked about at the top and as Dennis mentioned in the, in the interview, Right now, it still does feel a little bit aspirational, as in we're not quite there yet, and maybe we don't know exactly how it should be implemented and how it works in my organization. But you know, it's aspirational for a reason because it is the kind of place that we want to be able to get to. It will, if we're operating from this model, it will help protect your systems. It will 
help hopefully keep some cyber attacks at bay. It will help uh, those sorts of uh, intrusions that that we see happening out in the world, like from Oldsmar to solar winds to colonial pipelines. So, um, yeah, it, it's it, we may not be entirely there. It may take us some time to get there, but that doesn't mean it's not a place we want to go. Yeah, and kind of a more global statement too, just about cybersecurity as we start to uh, exit today's podcast. Um, and along with the idea that we talked about previously with chat GPT and you get out of it what you put into it, that applies to so many different areas of life. And it definitely applies to your cybersecurity practices. So whatever you put into your cybersecurity, whatever you put into, whether that be uh, trying to navigate as we um, further adventure into zero trust, whether that be just working on your cyber cleanliness as a company from person to person, whether that be working on communications internally between IT and OT, you get it out of it what you put into it. And so just making sure you're using those, those tools and uh, being responsible and making sure you're doing that, uh, it just will set you up for the best success you can. I feel like I just got the beginning of a motivational speech. I feel like I... I, I should apply that to every other part of my life. I need to work harder and practice more. Um, hey, thanks for listening. As always, if you want to contact us, if you want to be on the podcast, you can, as we said at the top, you can hit us up. I'm G Cohen, G-C-O-H-E-N at CFEmedia.com. And I am T-Wall, T-W-A-L-L at CFEmedia.com. And make sure you're checking out our website, industrialcybersecuritypulse.com or ICSPulse.com if you're into the whole brevity thing. Uh, for great stories, videos, more podcasts, uh, and check out other, other, uh, episodes in this series. We talked to a lot of really good people, a lot of people who are a lot smarter than we are. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we, we like these conversations and are excited to keep having more of them. Yes, we are. Thanks for joining us.